Hello and welcome to the Super Smith Bros podcast where we break down the craziest shit science has come up with this week in the world of health and fitness. I'm Dexter, a research scientist and also a prospective medical student. I'm Trent, a chemical engineer who likes digging into cutting edge health and fitness and emerging technologies in those fields. So with that, let's get it. All right, so today the first thing I wanted to talk about was these meat papers that came out. Um, did, did you hear anything about this in the news? The meat papers, no. The meat papers. I feel like I should have. Yeah. I'm a big meat guy. <laughs> That's all right. Did you see uh, Antonio Brown's tweet yesterday? Well, what did it say? It said something like, I'm going to eat twice as much meat just so I know that there's one vegetarian out there and whatever they're taking away. I'm adding right back on, so they're doing nothing. <laughs> like, Antonio. Oh, Jesus Christ, that dude's a mess. Um, anyway, so there's this series of six review papers that were released in the annuals of internal medicine. And do you know what a review paper is? Yeah, it takes a bunch of different this papers well? and compiles them. Yes. So you, there's a few different types of papers. You can have a review paper. You can have an original research paper. Original re research would be you know, a study that you perform yourself and is just essentially a write-up of that study. Whereas review papers take a bunch of papers that are already out there, go through them, and then collect data from those papers to make conclusions um, from all these different papers. So what's the difference between that that and a uh, those studies where – is that essentially the same thing, like these ones that you're seeing on uh, – uh, On what? Not It's not meat. Um like yes, epidemiology. The, the, the fat, yeah, epidemiology. What's the difference between epidemiology and well these studies? So, well, so epidemiology is just essentially a branch of medicine or of health that deals with like the incidence of diseases um, within a population. So it's looking more at like a whole population, whereas like a, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but like as a experimental study would look at changing one variable and looking at how the other variable changes okay. as you change one variable. So that's called an experimental yeah, observational study is kind of like the umbrella un under which epidemiology falls, where you're basically just watching a population and trying to collect data on that population and then making conclusions based upon that. Okay. You're not changing a variable and seeing what happens. That makes sense. Um, right. So in terms of comparing epidemiology, Epidemi epidemiological studies to a, re a review paper in the first those are going to be original research that you're just collecting from a big um you know set Massive of set of data. patients that you're following um whereas a review paper would be taking that paper that was original and then just combining a bunch of papers together to um answer whatever question you're looking gotcha at. so anyways back to these meat papers so there were six of papers that were released Four of them answered uh, these different red meat questions or processed meat questions. Um, these questions were uh, whether the reduction of red meat in processed meat had an effect on reducing cancer mortality. The second one asked whether patterns of red meat and unprocessed meat consumption are linked to uh, cardiometabolic and, and cancer outcomes. The third looked at red and processed meat and it's linked to all-cause mortality in cardiometabolic outcomes. And then the fourth looked at the effect of lower 
versus higher red meat intake on cardiometabolic and cancer outcomes. So they all sound kind of the same, um, a lot of the same words, but they're all a little bit different. And then that's four. There were six total papers. There was one paper that reviewed like people's thoughts and values and preferences regarding red meat. And then there was one paper that reviewed kind of all of these four papers together and put out like a final nutritional recommendation. And that was the review that you're talking about. And that was, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the thing that everybody is either super pumped about or super against. So <laughs> this is the kind of funny oh, thing yeah. about like the world is everyone's just so polarized. So, you know, you got like one, it, I was just scrolling through new, news articles and it's just like one's like, uh, you know, forget whatever you learned about red meat. And the other one's like uh, corruption within the, you know, red meat industry, yeah. like who is funding this study kind of a thing. It's like, <laughs> you, you're either a diehard vegetarian or you love meat. They're really yeah, just, exactly. There's no in between. Yeah. And it's just like, come on people. Um, and so the way that they did these papers and this part was kind of interesting to me is the way they did these review papers is they found a bunch of published articles that related to this topic or whatever question they're asking. And then they eliminated papers and, and they picked out a ton, like thousands of papers. And then they went through and eliminated papers that didn't fit to their selection criteria. Sure. So this was things like less than a thousand participants in the study that they were looking at, or participants were under the age of 18 or participants had some major illness at the baseline. So were there any juicy ones that were like trying to, they were trying to tailor their research? No, I don't. To? No, I think that, that that was a pretty good like elimination criteria. There wasn't nobody. Are you saying like, did anyone look at that criteria and say, oh, but you're forgetting these papers? Well, just the people who were were tailoring their research study based on certain oh, papers were they saying like, yeah. well, I'm only looking for papers that talk about this about meat so I can make the point I'm trying to make. But you're saying right, no, so, it, it was pretty standard as no. far as them getting rid of. So the papers that they were picking for these this review article are they're all um, original research papers. So it's it's nobody like cherry picking data. Sure. It's, I th- I think that what the reason to exclude some of those is like if you have a major illness at baseline, your study isn't really going to apply to like the general population. And plus, right. then you have a confounding factor of having a major illness. But um, that's why they did that. I think that of course papers that had those people in them might not be even good from the beginning. So just kind of interesting. Yeah. So then they took all these papers um, that they found that met the criteria and they pooled all the data together to then determine the overall risk for each factor that they were looking at. So for instance, you know, they pooled together all the data and looked at eating unprocessed red meat and the effect of that it has on having type 2 diabetes or the correlation it has on having type 2 diabetes. And, you know, they go through and try to match every factor to red meat and to unprocessed red meat. Sure. And this, and then the one thing that I found that was really interesting is they used this measure called the grade measure, G-R-A-D-E, um, like, like eighth grade. Um, they used this measure to assess the... Um, certainty of evidence within each of the papers, which is kind of mm. like a weird, a weird thing. But I I did read this paper that talks about what the grade, um, 
assess or the grade measure means. And, and basically, it just is ranking how certain evidence can be. So, so evidence can be either um, they they give like four different measures. So it can either be uh, very low certainty, low certainty, moderate certainty, or high certain or high certainty. And it's all based on people making the decision whether or not this is high certainty. Medium. Right. So it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a subjective measure yeah. because it's somebody saying, okay, well, this study is a low certainty study. Um, or yeah, low certainty study. But there are some things, I mean, they did put kind of like some words to what it means to be low certainty. So for instance, they said bias imprecision, inconsistency between multiple studies, um, and then observational studies all make make evidence low certainty. Okay. Which that makes sense, right? I buy that. Yeah. Evidence evidence for low evidence for observational studies should begin at low confidence, right? Because yeah. you're just watching something happen and you're trying to connect two variables that might not be connected together. There might be some confounding variable that you aren't accounting for. And so this is where this is where it kind of got everybody because all the studies that they're looking at are observational studies. So immediately you <laughs> are grading the information in all these papers is um, low, uh, has a low level of certainty. So th this wasn't be. something that these guys did when looking at potential papers for their research paper. They didn't go through and say, okay, I'm grading this as a high certainty. This no, is an outside do. entity that's coming in and saying... Well, this the methods are an outside entity, but they people within and it was a who was it? It was a co coalition of like physicians, um, nutritionists, scientists. Like a bunch of people came together to form this group called NutriRex, which are a international consortium to produce rigorous evidence based on nutritional recommendations. Cool. So. Right. It's a group of people and they used kind of the outline that has been used before to um, grade these papers based on the level of certainty to then determine the level of certainty of the papers they're going through. So that they themselves did this, which, you know, is that bias? Is there some bias in doing that? Not Maybe, if they graded but, all of them as low. <laughs> right. But that's that's the whole point is like that observational studies are shitty to begin with. So, right. And, and that's what they're saying. And that's, I agree with that. It's not, you know, that's not something that's not known. Well, new, uh, I should mention too that this for nutritional studies, observational studies, not great. When you have something like, you know, smoking causing lung cancer, it's such a high signal. You know, you're, right. you're having such a high increase in cancer rates for smokers that you can easily pick that out of a um, observational study and say that this is the causative. Um, but with nutrition. So what kind of what kind of observations are we talking about again? We're talking about we're observing people who eat more red meat. Right. So what are we observing? So you're basically interviewing people and asking them um, you know, how much red meat do you eat? Okay, you eat this much red meat. Then you ask them, you know, how much sugar are you consuming? Um, how often do you exercise? And do you have type two diabetes? Okay. And, and then you follow those people and you see when they died and that's their, um, you know, all cause mortality. Jeez. And then you see, do they get, do they get cardiovascular disease later in life? Um, 
So, yeah. <laughs> That's just kind of funny. Following around like funny. the, you get someone following you around like the grim. No, no, no. <laughs> it's like they come back every 10 years and then, you know, every, you can easily access patient data. So they can be like, oh, well, he died. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I want to make it clear that all these people did in this paper is that they took a bunch of other papers and took the data from those papers and pooled them together. So they weren't doing any of this patient studying. They were just pooling together a bunch of data that was already out there. Um, so, right. So they did this thing and what they found, taking all this data and um, getting these correlations, what they found is that there were weak correlations between cardio- cardiovascular disease mortality in red meat for both processed and unprocessed red meat. And there was also a weak correlation between type 2 diabetes in red meat and cancer mortality in red meat. Money. Um, but just to give you an idea of um, how, how big this effect is, or I guess how weak this effect is, is that for cardiovascular disease mortality in red meat, if they, they estimate that if you do not eat red meat, you have, uh, how do you describe this? So there's basically, there's four fewer people per thousand that die. Does that make sense? So sure. if you were to not eat red meat, if pe- everyone was just, just to stop eating red meat, four fewer people per thousand would die. So it's really, so it's like, like a 0.4%. Point, point yeah, 0.4% basically effect. Um, and and what's, what's, di- the, what's the error where are the error bars at in there? Right. The error bars are, nah, the error bars weren't that big. It's a, it's a significant effect, right? Because you can have, you can have such big error bars that your significance is, is not valid. But when I was reading through it, every, there are significant findings, but they're just so small. Okay. Um, I don't have that right in front of me, but, um, but, and then here's what people really got pissed about was they labeled the certainty of evidence for all these studies is either very low or low in each case because mm-hmm. they started off as being observational studies, meaning they were low low certainty of evidence to start with. And then some of these studies had bias or um, you know, didn't account for certain confounders, and so then they downgraded them to very low. So then in the end, they basically ended up saying that there's not enough evidence to cut back, to, to tell people to cut back on eating red meat. Yeah. Which I, which I would somewhat agree with. I think, I think that there might be a, a small effect, but um, yeah, you, you you almost need an experimental study, but you can't really do that on humans. Yeah, you, yeah, which you brings up another good for, point, especially if it's a, a lifetime. I mean, if if you're following someone or someone around until they die, yeah. you, you're talking a, a 40, 50 year study. You, you can't have an experimental study that lasts. Yeah. 50 years so yeah but i mean are you supposed to just take are you supposed to take the poor data from these observational studies and then say okay well they found that there's this slight effect i'm going to eat less red meat or do you say i'm going to wait until we can do experimental studies even though they're never going to happen sure yeah it's a kind of it's kind of a hard hard thing to do but i think that you can kind of say that you know if you eat red meat, it's probably not that big of a deal. I think the other important point here is that you can never 
determine causality from observational studies. You can just, you can only determine correlation. And so that's something that people I don't think really understand is they like to just say, oh, well, you know, in this study, there's this statistically significant chance that, you know, eating red meat is going to cause me to have cancer. Well, you you don't know that that's because of the red meat. Um, It could be, and, you know, it, it definitely could be, but that's, you're not going to get that from an observational study. So, And so in the very end, they uh, recommend that people don't change their red meat eating habits and say that the data is not conclusive enough to make a solid dietary recommendation. So are there people out there who are taking this study and, and they see it as, well, this shows that right. red meat has all these negative effects? That was what was so it's dumb. It's just kind of a headline grab. Yeah, that was what was so shitty. I was like reading these. Yeah, because you got people saying, oh, that confirms it. You know, red meat isn't bad. And then you had people saying, oh, can you believe that they make this conclusion? Like there's so much good science on this. And like nobody is just – I feel like no one's in the middle saying, well, you know, they have a point that this isn't great data. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, um, you know, take seriously some of the papers that have said there's this link. Um, right. But it's not end, the end all be all. Everyone should be vegan thing. So I don't know. That's my that's my thoughts on right. it. Yeah, I could see how that would get spun spun out. Yeah. I mean, you you got things to to cherry pick on both sides of that argument. And then you also have people saying that like, oh, but it goes way beyond. Like the New York Times published an article that said something along the lines of, you know, it goes way beyond the causes uh, causing people to get cancer. This you know, has to do with global warming and they don't even take that into account, which is true. They don't take that into account, but they literally stated that at the beginning of the paper that they just wanted to assess the direct impact that it was having on people's health. And they were leaving out like climate change and all these other factors that uh, this could play a role. in. so it's just, you know, people (laughs) just kind of get out of it what they want to get out of it. It's like Rorschach test. Yeah. What do you got? All right, so I got a study that, let's see, where is it from? It was done and conducted eh, by a bunch of different people. doesn't really matter. Uh, the title is Lipid Metabolism Links Nutrient Exercise Timing to Insulin Sensitivity in Men Classified as Overweight or Obese. So the headline here that you'll see in articles about this is that here's a study that shows when men exercise pre-breakfast, they burn twice the amount of fat that men who waited in, than men who waited until after breakfast. Which kind of makes sense. So that's a pretty, physiologically, right? Right. Your stomach's empty. Right. You got to burn something. I mean, you probably you might not have some glycogen stored up, so then you'd start burning fat. Right. So you got to burn something. But when people see that headline, they're gonna think, "Hey, if you don't eat breakfast and you go work out, you're gonna drop all this yeah. fat." You're going to lose weight. You're going to look good. You're going to have all this. Yeah, you're, you're just going to start building muscle. Well, if you're burning and fat at fat. twice the rate, you think, damn, it's leaving fast. Right, right. So if you start to dig into it a little bit. So they, they took 30 sedentary men. They were all classified as overweight or obese. So to me, that's that's a big thing too that is not going to get pointed out in, in any headlines or you're not going to read about in any articles is start with. all the subjects of this study were – overweight or obese to begin yeah, with that's so kind of if you're an athlete if you take care of yourself this may not apply to you i still think there's some good takeaways though if you if you are if you do exercise 
Um, so what they did is they either ate breakfast before or after working out. Mm-hmm. They had the exact same breakfast for both groups. And this breakfast, what was it? great breakfast, consisted of 1.3 grams of carbs per kilogram body mass. And it was just mal- pure maltodextrin. Mm-hmm. So it was basically just sugar. So they'd give you... Is that sugar? So, what is maltodextrin? Oh, it is. It's the... It's, it's a type yeah, of sugar. Okay. Sorry. Continue. It's in... Uh, they put it in like pre-workouts yeah. and stuff. It's it's supposed to be easily digested and That's metabolized. Right. So other than that, there's no other diet intervention, which to me doesn't really matter because you're, you're studying the effects of eating before and after a workout. So really we're just looking at this specific workout. So I don't really care what else you eat. Um, they took intermittent blood samples and some intermuscular, sorry, interskeletal muscle samples to look at this intramuscular lipid utilization. Mm -hmm. So to see how much fat you used, I'm sure you can probably use for energy within the muscle. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. I don't know much about that, but that sounds, sounds legit, right? (laughs) Sounds cool. Yeah. Um, Well, I think, so the way obviously your muscles need energy to fire, they need ATP. And so then you need to either, you need to metabolize something and typically that's sugar. But if you run out of sugar, your body will start metabolizing fat. Right. And then, right. So if it shows um, up in your, so I don't know if it, it must be between, yeah, it must live between the muscles a little bit too. And at least you can produce energy when you don't have enough carbs. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you got all that. So the results, they had a few different sections of results. I'll kind of go through it part by part. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is that one exercise before nutrient ingestion increases whole body and skeletal muscle lipid utilization, but does not differentially modulate muscle gene expression. So this first part is basically saying you, when you don't eat breakfast before you work out, you start to burn fat, obviously. So they measured that. They said that's what's happening. That makes total expect. sense, though. There's that should not be a surprise, right? If right, your not lipid mobile lipid mobilization should be higher if you don't eat breakfast because you need a source of energy to burn it. You don't have food that you just ate in your stomach. Right, right? it's energy balance. You okay, gotta, okay. yeah, you gotta have something to burn. Okay. No carbohydrates are available. You're gonna burn fat. So they proved that, which is great. The second part here is more interesting to me, and it says, it, but you don't have any differentiation in modulating muscle gene expression. So there's no changes in these specific genes that are implicated in metabolic adaptations. Hmm. So if you were to see a difference between your gene expression when you didn't eat breakfast before workout versus if you ate it before your workout. It'd be interesting. That would be cool. Right. That'd be because that, you that might point to something. some different things. Right. Yeah. So no changes there. Uh, number two, exercise before carbohydrate provision leads to sustained increases in lipid utilization. This is kind of a silly one. Basically, all they're saying is that they saw these uh, – they saw these increased lipid burn throughout the entire six-week study. So they saw this difference between 
the pre-breakfast and post-breakfast eating. We saw that same difference in lipid utilization the entire six weeks. So let me get this straight. So between, so for the whole six weeks, your your lipid lipid utilization was the same whether or not you ate breakfast before you worked out or after. No, no, in no. total, the same delta. Right, the same so, change between the two groups. Right, and that Overall. was specifically just during energy expenditure. So spe- specifically okay. just during exercise, it was a sustained uh, difference in lipid utilization. So that's just saying, oh, it wasn't this one-time thing that we saw or it didn't only happen at the the for the first couple of workouts and then switch back. Or mm, I see. It didn't, it didn't get better. It was okay. the same... The so for each workout, time, it was the same. Okay. Yep. Um, and then the last one, which I think is is one of the more interesting ones, is that carbohydrate timing does not alter body composition or oxidative capacity. So hmm. you're not going to get any, or the, at least these guys didn't get any change in their body composition. They didn't. Their fat to muscle ratio didn't change. And also their oxidative capacity or the amount of work they could do with their respiration rate. That's what I presume it means. Is that what it means to you, Mr. Doctor? Their expiration, wait, say it again. Their expiration date. That's when, so (laughs) when you're born, you're stamped with that. That's when you follow someone around like the Grim Reaper until they die and then you. No, say it again. Sorry. Um, so they, their oxidative capacity between the two groups didn't change. So when they were working out, they didn't get any added benefit. Right, right, you're right. They're, as far as their conditioning. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't quite know what that means, but oxidative capacity. Their, their capacity to produce energy? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's, Bas- Basically, that tells me that you're not going to get any aerobic benefit from working sure. out fasted. Okay. That sounds about right. Or at least at least this this group of people this did group. not. And what what's crazy to me is you talk about all the body composition changes that there was none. And this is the group that you would expect, right? If you're working oh, yeah. with obese patients or overweight patients, you would totally expect there to be a change in body weight if, you know, this had some effect, right? This would be the group you'd see it in. Right. And this is what all the Insta bras always talk about is, you know, I do my fasted cardio in the morning because that's going to help me have a better muscle to fat ratio. I'm going to, I'm going to look I'm burning better. fat, bro. I'm, yeah. I'm burning fat, bro. And what this is saying is actually, no, it doesn't. You did, doesn't you have no, right. It's, it's all energy balance. So huh. to me, the, the, the main takeaways here is it, it always comes back to energy balance. I'm a big physics. Yeah, physics, science. I believe in science. <laughs> I believe in <laughs> not, not to quote not nacho. to quote not to quote Nacho Libre, but I believe in science. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean physics the laws of physics always hold and one of them is that energy is, you know, neither conserved nor destroyed. It's all it's always the same. What laws Whatever. are that's the first law of thermodynamics, man. Yeah. That's what I, I thought. Think. Yeah. Something like that. But yeah, what's happening is you're, you're throughout the day, you're consuming the exact same amount of energy 
you're also expending the exact same amount of energy based on this study. And there, you shouldn't expect to see, there was no differences in weight loss between the two. There was no differences mm-hmm. in body composition because everyone is expending the same amount of calories. Everyone's consuming the same amount of calories. Outcome is always going to be the same hmm. until, yeah. until I see a study that, that says otherwise. It says otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Interesting. So what, but, were, and, the, and what I, were the headlines saying about this? Headlines. Were they saying what you said or were they saying? The, the headlines I saw basically were saying, hey, if you work out uh, or sorry, if you, if you work out fasted, this study shows that you burn twice the amount of fat. So not necessarily a lie, but I think it's, it, that's easy to perceive as, oh, wow, if I work out fasted, I'm going to lose all this fat. My body composition is going to be better. I, it's just it, it. It's a fine headline. It just isn't. This is bullshit. I, I mean, mean, they're just you, picking out the. the it's, it's like a, spinning. It's, 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 what like, he, it's what a headline is. I mean, yeah, they, they want clicks. Spinning. That's what you. That's what's going to get you clicks. Yeah. Um. I, so so wait. Let me go back for a sec. So you burn twice the amount of fat in the morning. So then, does that mean any? Later on, when these people are working out, they're burning twice the fat later, like the people who ate breakfast first. Because if you're burning twice well, the, f- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you, what's the what's the mechanism there? Isn't uh, isn't what you eat? How does oh, that get turned so, into fat? Um, well, you if, if you don't use it for energy, you can st- store it as fat. Right. So it's just going to get stored. So whatever fat they burned in the morning. They're going to eat right after they work out. And, and it all just get gets stored. stored. Okay. So yeah. I see what you're saying. So they must they must be eating a little bit more or something like that to kind of compensate for. No, they're eating, they're eating exactly the same as the group that eats breakfast. So then must the, the group that eats breakfast first then also must burn a decent amount of fat during their workout, right? If, if energy balance is all the same. Or they burn the same amount of calories. Right, right. They burn the same amount of right. Okay, that's what I'm missing. They're, they're burning the same amount of calories, just not the fat. And then you know you pick up right. So the, their calories are coming back from the sugar. Some of that gets converted back to fat, and it's like nothing rapid. Okay, exactly. I see. Yeah. Okay. It's clear. The, the one benefit that I will say this this kind of talks about is that you do get a some increase in insulin sensitivity. Hmm. Okay. So, which is good. That is a good thing. All right, the next thing I wanted – you got anything else on that? Nope, that's it. Okay. The next thing I wanted to talk about was a new rise in a specific set of diseases. What do you think those are? If you had to guess, um, what set of diseases are on the rise? Could it be the, the disease that causes the rain to fall? Is that a Toto reference? The clouds – the clouds to be blown. I don't know what that means. The lungs, the nicotine. To be <laughs> no, this is not about into the lungs. I know you want to talk oh, about okay. your favorite subject here, but um, which also that's on the rise still. But what I wanted to talk about was about sex oh. and about STDs. Oh, yeah. gonorrhea. So inter- interesting. It, yeah. So interestingly enough, the CDC just put out a press release on October eighteenth. And the press release was titled, STDs continue to rise in the U.S. 
So this report looked at data that was collected during 2017 and 2018 and showed that there was an increasing rate in the three most commonly reported STDs, which are syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Whoa. I did not know that those are the three most common, most reported. Wow. What, What did you think the three most reported were? I don't know. What's the one where you get zits on your lips? That's um, that's yeah, Herp? herpes. Yeah, interesting. I would yeah. think it's in there too. Um, but if you had to guess, how many cases were reported of these three in 2018 combined? Just overall? Yeah, if you had to guess. It's mm, kind of hard. In 2018, probably yeah. uh, 150,000. Whoa, you're off, brother. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. hold on. Let me re-guess that. That's a horrible guess. 150,000. Um, yeah, no, because what? In the U.S., how many millions of people are there? There's 500 million? million. 500 million. Something like that. Um, whoa. Really? 300,000? I actually am okay with that guess. 2.4 million. Jesus. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot. Um so I blame, I blame Tinder. <laughs> that's what I was getting to is what do you think the reasons are? And actually a lot of, or I guess some of the articles I was reading were talking about potentially social media playing a role because it promotes anonymous sex and then people go have sex and, you know, don't wear a condom or whatever. And then they get STDs. I buy it hundred percent. I th- I think so too, but at the same time, I feel like people are more educated now than ever on STDs and like wearing condoms and stuff. Why is it that people all of a sudden don't think they need to protect themselves? You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, why would it be? Is, are people having more sex than they used to? No, I Probably. think sex rates have gone down, right? Really? Isn't that a thing? I think. It's just the herp and stuff. Maybe marriage rates have gone down. And then, well, if marriage rates go down, obviously, probably sex goes down too. Well, well I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking. Sex between random opposite. people goes up. Right, right, right. So sex between random people has been going up because of dating apps and social media and stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel like those platforms are also good for promoting like safe sex ads and stuff like that. So I just, I'm, con- I'm conflicted because I'm like, well... Everyone has so much access to all the information and like people like to teach or, you know, they teach that stuff more in schools now and there's less of a stigma around, you know, using condoms and all that stuff, right? Than there used to be. So why aren't people more into it? Let me tell you why. Why? Nah. People don't, you know, it's it's not the same. People don't. (laughs) It's not the same with that. Okay. Yeah. It's a, we can, we can leave it. That's probably part of it. Yeah. All right. Um, there was this, so there's this interesting article that Peter Atiyah sent out in his newsletter and it was talking about diet soda versus regular soda. And so there was this study that basically looked at the association between soft drink consumption and mortality. Um, and, and, and they looked at normally sweetened soft drinks and then diet you know fake fake sweetened soft drinks and looked at mortality well which one would you guess has a higher mortality rate 
I want to be a contrarian and say regular soda. No, actually, oh, they didn't. Bummer. They found that, which which is interesting. They found that um, essentially, you are eight percent more likely to die at, at some follow up when you are consuming a normally sweetened beverage. Okay, that's eight percent. However. Wait, eight percent more likely to die yeah, when you've consumed regular right. soda. Regular soda, not, not diet. Whoa, whoa! So I haven't got right. to the diet yet. That's just regular soda. Eight percent more likely to die compared to people who don't drink soda. So this is like comparing drinkers to non-drinkers. However, okay, you are twenty-six percent more likely to die at follow-up if you are consuming a fake sweetened beverage versus somebody who doesn't consume a fake sweet beverage or or Jeez. doesn't consume soda. So, but again, causality but doesn't equal this, right. This study is kind or correlation doesn't equal causation. This is where Peter Atia just ripped it apart because basically this is how the study works. So they interviewed um they they have data from 451,000 people in this epic study. And so what happened is these patients all filled out a questionnaire at baseline, which was between the years of 1994 and 2000, to assess how much soda or diet soda they drank. And then these participants essentially recorded the number of glasses per month, week, or day that they consumed soda. So does that make sense? Yeah. So back way long ago, they did that. And then from there, they basically extrapolated out and said, okay, well, that's how much you're drinking for the rest of your life. And then at approximately 16 years later, they assessed the outcomes. And that's on average, right? Because this is, they're assessing outcomes of death. So then they looked later in life at when these people died. And if you were to then have reported drinking diet soda, you know, 20 years ago, then they would have said, oh, that diet soda must have been drinking at the same rate throughout those 20 years, um, which obviously is complete BS. Yeah. There's no way for them to know. So that's how they made this study. And like, it's like, come on, that's, that's not good. Dr. But, Dex calls BS. Yes. I call BS, but at the same time, there's, there's probably a little bit something there to that. I mean, you're putting in a fake sweetener into your body. You don't really know what that does. There's some early studies probably done to see if it was carcinogenic, but, um, you know, I th I don't think it's great to drink diet soda. Probably, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think maybe long term, it's it's not a good thing. I know there's been some some studies that say if you drink diet soda, you get an insulin response because your body thinks you it has sugar, and when it doesn't have sugar, yeah. it makes you more hungry, so you eat more calories. So if you're obese, it could just make you more obese, even though you think. It's making you less obese because it's calorie right. free, um, but I think on a short term yeah. basis, like if you're if you're looking for something quick and you don't drink soda often, I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice to go for a diet coke. Yeah, I, I don't think this study says anything about uh, about the how if if uh, diet soda is worse than um, normal sweetened soda. I don't think yeah, this that, proves the study anything, itself. So. Yeah, it doesn't sound. So so stupid to have 
data that's filled out 20 years and then say, oh, well, they must have been drinking the same amount of diastole for all yeah, those 20 silly. years. Somebody could have filled the survey and then been like, you know what, I'm going to start drinking water. And then, you know, it's just, it's just <laughs> stupid. So, 